Just a word before our scripture reading today. Uh, as you can tell from the Bibles in front of you, we commend the English Standard Version. I love it. On the whole, I think it's the most reliable word-for-word translation. But no Bible translation is perfect. And that's why in every generation we still look at the Hebrew and the Greek of the Bible. And in our passage today, the, the ESV is unique in its interpretation of one Greek word, parthenos, meaning um, virgin or unmarried one. So I'll, I'm going to follow the majority of translations in reflecting what I consider to be that plain meaning rather than betrothed, which is typed in your Bibles. Uh, if that's frustrating for you, I'm sorry. Um, maybe you can channel that discontentment and pray for some Bible translators. Um, But for now, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. First Corinthians seven, verses twenty-five to forty. First Corinthians seven, verses twenty-five to forty. Now concerning those who are unmarried, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or virgin woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his virgin, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as a virgin, he will do well. So then he who marries his virgin does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. You can be seated as I pray for us.
Lord, there are some concepts here that are quite strange to our modern ears. But we do confess that our society has made a mess out of marriage. Our society has made a mess out of singleness. And sadly, that's often true in your church as well. So we ask today that you would reorient our thinking. We ask that Christ would be exalted in my words. And that you'd give us courage to live the lives that you have for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are in between preaching series. James just finished Judges two weeks ago, and then next week is going to be starting a short series on the fear of God before he begins the series on Galatians. So this is just kind of a one-off sermon, and maybe you're asking, really, Scott, why this text? Why this topic? Why now? Well, in 1951, 7.4% of Canadian households were single persons. In 2016, 28.2% were. So nearly one in three Canadian households were single persons. And that trend is expected to continue to grow as um, young people just shy away from the commitment of marriage, often reacting to the horrible examples of marriage that they've seen, or sometimes just simply wanting to live in a manner um, where they're able to pursue their own desires. So what's our response to that as a church? Do we seek to then push marriage, inferring that the married life is the responsible and mature Christian life? Is that what the Bible says? Among others in our culture, marriage still has this almost magical appeal. That's what completeness and put-togetherness looks like. And so we're obsessed with weddings in our movies, in our fashion magazines, in our tabloids. But that magical vision of marriage, is that a realistic one? Or does the Bible actually give us warnings about marriage? And lastly, what's our reaction to people from an LGBT background? Are we at a loss for how to engage them with the best news that they'll ever hear? Do we have joyful examples of celibacy among us? And how will we invite them into chaste lifestyles in a loving community if we don't truly value single people in our community? So these and other questions make me believe that every church needs to spend some time cultivating a healthy theology of singleness. And we're going to do that today from 1 Corinthians. Now, for those of you who have been in Bible class at 9 a.m., we've spent a lot of time talking about the ancient city of Corinth and what it was like. For the rest of you, I like to describe Corinth as sort of this dazzling mix of New York, L.A., and, and Las Vegas. Um, so wealth from trade was immense. Entertainment was big business. Image was everything. And sexual ethics were out the window. Can you imagine trying to plant a church in a city like that? Or if you're a new believer, can you imagine trying to navigate all of those social pressures and conflicting moral messages? For most people there were huge temptations not to stay pure. And for those who were able to keep themselves pure, there were huge temptations towards spiritual pride. Does that sound familiar? I think it's not that different from our own day and age. And the confusion and the spiritual pride in Corinth led to a lot of conflict, which prompted the Corinthians to write Paul a letter with a lot of questions that they needed him to answer. 
And his response is what we have in this epistle of 1 Corinthians. He spends a lot of time early on in the letter just uh, rebuking them for their divisive pride that was creating these conflicts. But then he goes on to answer their, their questions. And you can see that beginning in chapter 7, verse 1, when he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And then likewise, our specific section here, starting in verse 25, it begins, Now concerning... So what's the specific question that Paul's answering? Well, it seems that people were divided about whether or not the unmarried people should even pursue marriage. And we don't know exactly all that was behind that. We don't know. um, Maybe the thought was that in such a sexually charged culture, celibacy was the only sure way to a pure life. Or maybe the arrogant people among them thought that singleness was, was somehow the mark of one who had achieved a heightened state of spirituality, you know, something similar to what happened in the Middle Ages when it was just believed that, well, any serious Christian is going to be a monk or a nun. In our Western Protestant culture, though, it's interesting. We'd probably be coming at the question from the opposite end, right? We would say, well, surely godly life happens best in the context of family. So we should push marriage, right, Paul? Surely it's not best for a person to remain single. Well, what's Paul's response? Does he think that it's better to stay single than to marry? The short answer is yes. Paul promotes singleness. But not in the way that the Corinthians are thinking. And not for the reasons that the Corinthians are thinking. So this section is really an elaboration on his initial statement in uh, in verses 8 and 9. Where it said... To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. For many Christians, Paul's conclusions here are shocking. And rightfully so. I mean, how can Paul say that singleness is good if Genesis 2 says that it is not good for the man to be alone and it celebrates marriage as a sort of pattern for all of humanity? And is Paul just ignoring the huge emphasis of the Old Testament on family throughout? I mean, singleness just wasn't done. And the covenant family was grown through marriage and offspring. And because of that shocking difference with the Jewish worldview, some people look for reasons to dismiss these words as less than authoritative scripture. They point first to verse 25 where it says, Now concerning the unmarried, I have no command from the Lord. See, they say, what Paul is about to say is just his opinion. It's no more binding on me than if Joe Christian down the street had told me his opinion. Well, I'm afraid we can't get away with that sort of thinking. What he means by no command from the Lord is that he has no explicit directive from the words of Christ to the effect that people should not marry. There's no command. So don't feel bound either to marry or to stay single. We're not in the realm of it being morally right or wrong to get married. We're in the realm of what is wise for your circumstances. And Paul will continue to share those principles of wisdom with apostolic insight. Because, as it says, by the Lord's mercy, he is trustworthy. And those who don't like Paul's conclusion sometimes also latch on to verse 26. 
Aha, they say, in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So the reasoning goes, there must have been some sort of severe circumstance in Corinth at that time that made Paul say this, and, and we don't have that circumstance, so it doesn't apply to us. Maybe a famine or a, a time of severe persecution or some sort of social peril. And the only problem with that is that history doesn't reveal anything terribly unique in Corinth at that time. As I've mentioned, the pressures facing them weren't that different from what we face. And faithful Christians in every generation, in every society, could be called upon to withstand famine or persecutions without warning. No, the distress to which Paul refers here is something much more universal, something common to all Christians. Distress is likely referring to the tribulations that characterize this church age. The trials that his people have to go through that define this time between the two comings of Christ. It's a time that in Galatians 1, Paul calls the present evil age. And so in Ephesians 5, Paul says that we should make the best use of the time because the days are evil. And it's that making the best use of the time that he's concerned with in this passage as well. So first in verses 26 and 27, we see that Paul's unpacking the basic answer to the question. It is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. And if a virgin woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. The thought is, it's hard enough to live a faithful life for Jesus. Who needs to add the pressures of marriage as well? The singles who have always just assumed that you should or will get married. Stop and think about this principle. If you're able to live faithfully for God in your single state, why change? Don't just follow social inertia. In Matthew 19, Jesus' own disciples had a realistic enough view of marriage troubles to say that, well, the possibility of being stuck in a bad match might make it better for a person to just not marry. And surprisingly, Jesus agreed with them, saying, yeah, if you're able to stay unmarried for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, do that. Of course, many, perhaps most people, are not able to do that. And Paul affirms the goodness of that too. But for now, let's really focus in on verses 29 to 31, which are the core logic behind this whole passage. So for those of you who like outlines, I'm seeing this text in three major sections. Verses 25 to 28, Paul just presents the concept that the choice of singleness is good. The second section, verses 29 to 31, he provides the important reason for this. And then in verses 32 to 40, he unpacks further reasoning. And that, that further reasoning has sort of three subsections. First, for people choosing to remain single. Secondly, for people choosing to marry. And lastly, for widows or widowers. So let me read verses 29 to 31 again, which are really the interpretive key for this whole passage. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. 
From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. There's a key truth here in these verses that affects everything we do. The present form of this world is already passing away. And it's not that Christians should therefore check out and just abandon the world. No, but they also shouldn't let the present age dictate how they live. It says that the appointed time has grown very short. And that word there used for appointed time, it it often means a critical moment in which much is at stake. A time of opportunity that won't last forever. He's referring to the time that remains before the return of Christ. And you may ask, well, very short. I mean, it's already been 2,000 years. Yes, but this language of the time being short, it's all over the New Testament. And Second Peter reminds us that God's sense of time is quite different from ours. And with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. You see, sometimes time is less about how much is left, and it's more about what you should be doing. So I, I was just thinking about video games. Um, let's use Super Mario Brothers as an example. Right, So you're, you're playing, you're trying to get through the stage, and there's a time limit. And I think it's in the last minute, the music speeds up, and you're like, oh, no. And, uh, and what's the point of the music speeding up? Why is it giving you that signal that the, the time is short? Is it so that you can turn and watch the clock and anticipate the, the running out of the time? No, it's so that you can get to work, so that you can be about what you should be about, getting through that stage while there's still time. And similarly here for us, the focus should be on the Lord's work, not on precisely how much time is left for the fading structures of this world. I think you'll notice here that the application of this principle, it goes a lot farther than just singleness and marriage. So let's walk through it. First, let those who have wives live as though they have none. What? So, so I'm just supposed to neglect my wife? No, no. That would contradict everything Paul says about marriage elsewhere, including earlier in this chapter. I think what it's getting at is that no one should look at a married Christian's life and say, the purpose of that person's life was a successful marriage, or the the purpose of that person's life was cultivating a happy biological family. We should guard against becoming all-consumed with our spouse and our life together, or making an idol out of the institution of marriage. It's passing. So devote your lives together to something much bigger than yourselves. Don't let your marriage merely be staring into each other's eyes for decades, as if that were even possible. Um, But no, instead, let, let the defining posture of your marriage be standing side by side, holding hands, and gazing together at Christ. And there will be some unique ways in which God has gifted the husband or the wife to serve that don't necessarily involve each other. And so you should give yourself to those ministries, but in a way that strengthens your marriage and doesn't sabotage it. 
So I think that that's generally what this is getting at, that you are not a married person. You are a servant of Christ at the end of the age who just happens to be married. And the position of the hands on the clock of history should also affect the way that we mourn and how we rejoice. So for those who are in Christ, we know that for certain we are going to inherit all things. There's this remade world just waiting for us, one devoid of evil, where God will dwell with humanity. And as we hope in that future, our losses on this old earth will feel much less severe. And our pleasures now, good as they may be, they'll feel less important. As we buy goods, as we deal with the world, which we must, our joy won't be wrapped up in how we fare because we trust God to give all we need. And our main focus is simply honoring him and caring for those around us. We know that the things we buy aren't ours to keep and we guard against becoming engrossed in a world that's actually on its way out. Because in Christ's death and resurrection, God has already determined the course of things. And so the Christian is free already from the forces that would control the lives of others. So as Calvin says, we should be using this world in a way such as will not hinder or delay us on our journey. Imagine that you're a kid and your family is moving far away the next day. Now, you may still do the same things you would do every day. You may want to go to your favorite playground. You may want to hang out with your favorite local friends. But if you're anything like my son, you would do it differently. You would do it in a way that's saying goodbye, in a way that's preparing you for your new life. And you might think that such a child would pour himself into those fun activities for the last day to to get as much as he can out of them before they're over. But our minds and our emotions don't work that way. They begin to process the transition. And so should we. Now is the time to focus on eternal things. To live according to our new reality. So this section on the appointed time, it shows that both marriage and singleness have to be done differently. The world around us tells us to use the framework of, well, what, what good is it for right now? What can you get out of marriage now? What can you get out of singleness now? And let that determine your choices. But no, this passage gives us a radical idea that these decisions about marriage actually have to be made with the next age in view. In verses 32 and 35, we see that this principle is applied to the choice of remaining single. And he says the benefit of singleness is that one is spared some worldly concerns that are inherent to marriage. Now, I want to emphasize here that this anxiety over worldly things, it's not, it's not implying sin necessarily. It's not like, don't be like those sinful married people. No, he's, he's just saying, look, part of marriage is that you take cues from your spouse and you try to be pleasing to them, and that's part of the job. That necessarily means that your focus is going to be somewhat divided. It's not bad. It's, it's just distracted. So understand that's part of the package. You know, there are certain ways and certain degrees to which Sarah and I would love to devote ourselves to the Lord even further. And we'd love to devote ourselves more fully to the service of this church. Um, 
but to, to a certain level, we're just not able. We have limits. And that's because we have to see the needs of each other and we have to look after the needs of our children. So the point is that marriage comes at a cost. For the single person who longs to make every last breath of their life on this earth count in service to the Lord, that's something to be weighed. I mean, there's a reason why Paul was the most effective, or I guess he phrases it, the, the hardest working of the apostles, right? Uh, he says, I worked harder than any of them by the grace of God. And uh, I think that that's because he's the only one who is single. I mean, he didn't have to deal with diapers or in-laws or late-night arguments or maintaining a bigger house, you know, sick children, hormones of teenage children. No, instead, Paul, as a single person, he can have, and, and you, as a single person, you can have more time to spend in prayer or visiting the sick from the congregation or serving the poor or helping the clueless pastor with computer problems or meeting a coworker at a coffee house to continue a conversation about the gospel. These are sorts of things that single people can just pick up and do. Or you can, in good conscience, take more risks, like flying a missionary helicopter over an area that occasionally takes gunfire, just as an example. I mean, my point is that the single person's options for serving the Lord are wide open. Be as flexible, be as adventurous as you can. Such a single life would be of great benefit to any Christian. Instead of going back and forth in your mind about how to please your spouse, uh, you would be free to use all of your mental and emotional energy and your time purely for the Lord. Clearly, if possible, this is the best choice. But it's not a restraint. Literally, he says, not to put a noose around you. Again, there's no command. And that's because there's other considerations as well, which we'll see down in verse 36. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward the woman in his life, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. Like he said in, in verse 8, if there's an out-of-control passion, if, if you can't go throughout the day without your thoughts wandering to someone in an unhealthy way, just get married. Genesis 2 is still true. Marriage is from God, and if it'll keep you from sin, then enjoy this good thing. Though you'll be more distracted, you clearly would have been distracted anyway. And elsewhere, Paul has amazing things to say about marriage, right? We're not teaching those passages today, but you're familiar with them. About how marriage glorifies God by serving as a picture of Christ and his church. So, while the single life devoted to the Lord is to be chosen if possible, we should also marvel at the married life devoted to the Lord. Both are profound signs to the world around us about Christ our coming bridegroom. As Sam Albury puts it, marriage, marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, but singleness shows the sufficiency of the gospel. Again, marriage shows the shape of the gospel, but singleness shows the sufficiency of the gospel. So marriage gives the picture to the world of a man laying down his life for his bride, just as Christ did for his church. It's a powerful metaphor. 
But the contented single person shows off with his or her whole life that Christ is enough. Christ is enough, and he can be for you too. His church is my truest family, and it can be for you too. It's beautiful. But that single life displaying the sufficiency of the gospel, it'll have hiccups too, right? There will be times of loneliness. There will be times when the weight of society's judgment against your situation seems unbearable. But verse 37 continues. Whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to leave the girl he's considering as a virgin, he will do well. So then, he who marries the girl he was considering will do well, and he who refrains from marriage altogether will do even better. In short, in this appointed time, the principle is marry only if it's eternally strategic. The nearness of life with God forever, it means that we, we can be focused, we need to be focused in how we manage all relationships that aren't eternal, including romance. So if you need marriage in order to stay pure and focused, then go for it. Get after pursuing marriage. Don't drag your feet. But if that's not you, then know that singleness is not an emergency that needs attention. It's not a problem that needs to be solved. It's a gift. A gift for you and a gift for the church through you. There's one last situation that Paul visits in order to put flesh on this principle. And it's that of widows and widowers in verses 39 and 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. Now, just to be clear, I don't think Paul has anything against the comforts here. Um, But I do think that he would suggest that the degree to which George and Bev have been able to keep propelling each other into joyful service of the Lord, I mean, that is really uncommon. And I think Paul would want us to be realistic and, and see that probably in the majority of remarriages, there will be much distraction and perhaps much unanticipated hard work. So as he said in the verses above, he would spare us that dividedness. He would love to secure our undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, I I don't know what it's like to lose a spouse or to be abandoned by a spouse and then to feel a loneliness that maybe feels worse than, than if you'd never been married. But I do know that God is trustworthy and I know that his word has answers. So if you're in that situation looking for answers, I'd recommend this book from our church library. The Undistracted Widow by Carol Cornish. Uh, So I'll put that back after the service. Hopefully someone will check it out today. But I am amazed at how much our church benefits from that undivided devotion on the part of so many of you who have been widowed or who have been abandoned by your spouses. So I I just want to pause and thank you because instead of isolating yourselves in loneliness... You've pressed into your true family, the church, and you've blessed us all immensely through your service. 
you show the gospel to be sufficient and you make Christ look very good to the world around us. So I hope that all of us will go out of our way to honor men and women like this, to pray for them, to eagerly welcome them into our homes and to learn from them. Now Paul closes this whole section with an ironic understatement. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. I think this comment is meant to to put in their places those who are on one or, or both sides of the controversy who are claiming that their view of marriage or singleness made them more spiritual than their opponents. And in line with the the whole of 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying, back off, you pompous, supposedly hyper-spirit-filled people. Realize that while singleness is in one sense the option to be preferred, it's not because it necessarily leads to greater spiritual preeminence. It's because, if possible, singleness makes the best use of the time. And for married people, I hope that that's a, a helpful clarification you don't need to feel like you have God's second best. True, it's likely that your, that your distraction with matters at home, it's going to lead to a more narrow influence for Christ than you might otherwise exert. But the comparison should be with oneself, not with others, right? It's never healthy to, to get in the comparison game with our brothers and sisters. So my married life... For all I know, it might be more focused on the Lord than another person's disobedient single life. But the point that Paul's making is that my married life certainly is not more focused on the Lord than would be my single life, assuming that my passions were under control. Yet Paul seems to understand that controlled passions won't be the case for most people. And so he says, he who marries does well. But if, on the other hand, you're tempted to think that singleness is second best, then this spirit-filled, unmarried apostle reminds you that the present form of this world is passing away. So if you want to be devoted to what lasts, he commends the celibate path first trod by Jesus, who is the most complete and contented human being who ever walked this earth. So singleness is not a curse. It's a gift. And the practical implications for our lives from this passage are many. And I'm going to start with married people. Do you have a happy marriage? If so, then the end of verse 29 is for you. How can you get after living in a way that does marriage with an eternal perspective so that you're not just focused on the family? In no circumstances should marriage be an idol. Let those who have spouses live as though they had none. Sarah and I actually had verses 29 to 31 read at our wedding. Romantic, huh? Um, But um, seriously, I think we should all take some time with our spouses and ask the question, are we too much just about our own little domestic world? If so, how can we invite others in for the sake of the kingdom? And how can we extend ourselves out to be even more focused on the things of the Lord? May the Lord bless you richly as you trust him in new ways. Now, for any Christians who are in a difficult or a roller coaster marriage, take comfort 
in the fact that marriage isn't where we're meant to find ultimate fulfillment anyway. It's a framework that's passing. And at the consummation of all things, your heart will be full. In the meantime, ask God for how marriage, how your marriage can make you more ready for that day. And one resource that I'd recommend to that end is, is this book called This Momentary Marriage. This Momentary Marriage. It's also in our church library. I'll put it back in. You know, actually, this is a great book for, for all married people. So, you know, just because you're checking it out, we're not going to assume that your marriage is on the rocks. So. Um, but... Um, no, but, but for, for any of you out there who are weary, who, if you're weary in marriage, then may God give you fresh energy and eternal perspective so that you'll be faithful in prayer for your spouse, so that you'll honor your vows with gladness, because the time is short. And for all married people, I, I want you to show honor to the unmarried people among us. Don't joke about how, oh, we need to find you a husband or a wife. Don't hint as though there was some sort of incompleteness in their situation. For all you know, that single person could be having a quality of communion with God that your dividedness simply makes impossible. And don't exclude single people because, well, they're just in a different stage of life. No. Our church should be a family where we love spending time with people who are different from ourselves and where we're eager to learn from people who are different from ourselves. You know, some wisdom does have to come from experience, but we're wrong if we think that a single person can't understand our situation or can't give us insight for marriage or parenting. If they're people of prayer and of the word, then they should have much wisdom about every aspect of the human experience. In fact, it's, it's my fervent hope that someday the Lord would provide for us an elder who is a single man who like the Apostle Paul and so many church fathers and Luther in his most productive years and, and John Stott and many other pastors throughout history have been singularly devoted to the Lord without being divided in their attentions by domestic matters. Now to singles out there most directly this passage tells you that it's better not to marry if you don't need to. Take that seriously. But I'd also like to point out that this passage only elevates a singleness that's devoted to the Lord. So if you're avoiding marriage as merely a way of delaying the responsibilities of adulthood, you're sinning. I mean, part of the reason why this passage of Scripture is so foreign to our churches is because the singleness we see in our culture is often so unproductive. Unfortunately, a lot of 20-somethings just need to be told to start supporting themselves, to develop lives outside of social media, and to stop playing with fire in romantic relationships that aren't God-honoring. So if that's you, the church waits for you to grow up, and we're ready to equip you and to let you serve, and we're eager to watch the beauty of a pure devotion to Christ mature in your life. Most singles, however, are probably in a third group. You're not avoiding responsibility. You're not voluntarily choosing singleness. And I fear you're not content either. And some of you are saying, yeah, the, the contented single life. 
I tried that. But my singleness is not focused. My desires are out of control. And it seems that there's nothing I can do about the situation. And all of you cute married couples out there, you just have no ability to help me deal with that. On one level, you're right. I was in your shoes for a brief time, but then at age 30, God brought my wife along. Thankfully, our ability to minister to each other is not limited to having identical experiences, right? If that were the case, then we'd all be isolated, unable to help each other. But just like the married people can benefit from a single person's perspective on family life, so also the single person should not shut out exhortation from married people. There is no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common to man. So let us into your lives. Seek married friends. We need each other's perspectives. And, single people, we need your devotion to the Lord. If you're distracted by your desire to be married, I'm not suggesting that you just bottle that up and work at faking contentment. No. Be a real person. Be a vulnerable and expressive person who's bringing those desires to God and actively looking for his provision of a worthy spouse. But if that spouse delays, or if perhaps that isn't what God has for you, then I want you to know that if you're in Christ, you're going to be okay. You'll be okay. No longer are your hopes and your dreams bound up with finding the woman or the man of your dreams, the person who can complete you. You found him already. And in Christ, you've been given a family too. And it's a family in which you're not just children forever, but you can also be parents. Because the Garden of Eden commissioned to be fruitful and multiply image bearers of God across this world, that has been caught up into the broader vision of the Great Commission to be fruitful and multiply the image of Christ in the form of spiritual offspring across this world. You can do that. So aim to be fathers and mothers to many. Because physical families are good, but spiritual families are eternal. And what if God is delaying or saying no to your this-worldly dreams for marriage precisely because he has a much broader fruitfulness in mind for you? Perhaps... You'd say, well, great, fruitfulness, but I'm still missing out. But realize the thing that you're pining after, it's just a shadow of the greater marriage that you will share in. The marriage of the lamb with his bride, the church, who has been clothed in the fine white linen of righteousness. And we're told that there will be rejoicing and exultation and blessing for all who are there in that day. Friends, there are wonders and joys in his presence that far outweigh the delight of any conjugal bliss or companionship for a matter of mere decades here on this old earth. So in light of that ultimate reality, really what greater gift could he give you than a singular devotion to him? That means that you can ignore the messages of our broken culture that says your sex life is your identity. That's garbage. Sure, keep praying for and pursuing marriage, but don't do it frantically. 
Let your trust in God turn each lonely moment into a willing sacrifice. And slowly, this time of singleness, whether it's short, whether it's long, slowly as you trust him, it will feel less like starvation and more like a fast. Let's ask him for help right now. Father, you know each of your children and you know the circumstances that surround us. And you know how those unique circumstances have affected our hearts and our minds. You know that some are weary, some are bitter, some are naive, some are confused. But all of us, God, in whom your spirit dwells, we, we long to know you more. And so in whatever life you've appointed for us, make us joyful, make us wise, Give us a focused devotion. Make us agents of the age to come. We submit all of our relationships to you. For Christ's glory, amen.